Well, we're blessed today to have a good friend of mine. In fact, it is David Loftus's brother. He's in town. Uh, Jesse and Tyler Olson got married last night. And there have lots of family members in town. And when I knew Michael was going to be in town, I asked him if he would speak to us this morning. Michael and his wife, Jo Beth, where are you, Jo Beth? You're back there. Just stand up real quickly so people can get an eye on you. There she is. Michael and Jo Beth have spent over 35 years of ministry experience actually in missions. And they've lived in four foreign countries. Michael has traveled extensively as the president of the Association for Baptists for World Evangelism. For 10 years, he traveled extensively all over the globe and is now the executive director of the DNA Global Network. And I can tell you, with being here at Northwest, those of you that have been with us in our few years of history know that we have a real heartbeat, not just for our community, but for the globe and for what God is doing all over the world. And I'm thankful to have Michael here today. Michael brings a unique experience as he's not only traveled the globe, but has given his life to missions. And so we're very blessed to have him here today. Michael, thanks for what you've done for the larger kingdom and for what God is still going to use you yet to do. It's a blessing to have you here this morning. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. What a privilege to be with you today. Let's just start that over again. And to get us started with giving you a little bit of a picture of where we are in terms of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ after 2,000 years since his birth, I want you to just watch this video with me for about two minutes. Tonight, if you were to look down on our planet from outer space, you would see a constellation of electric lights emanating from every city on Earth all set in a sea of darkness. What if you could flip a switch and see not physical light, but spiritual light instead? Where would the dark places be then? There are spiritually dark places in our planet, places where, despite the growth of modern technology, the light of the gospel has never shown even once, ever. In these places, from the beginning of time until this very moment, entire lifetimes have been lived by men and women who left this earth, having never heard the story of a man from Nazareth and the good news that he shared. There are currently 340 million people, over 2,000 language groups, without one single book of the Bible translated into their language. More than 3,000 people groups have no one actively seeking to reach and disciple them. And over one million villages and neighborhoods exist without one local church among them. All this begs the question, why? 2,000 years have passed since the life of Christ, yet somehow the vast resources of the global church have not been connected to the places without a single light of truth. Today, 99% of Christian mission effort and financial support goes to places where the church is already present. There are 2.3 billion people worldwide who call themselves Christians, 5 million churches, 43,000 denominations, and 12 million full-time workers. But the task still goes unfinished. What is needed is a group of men and women who understand the times and know from scripture what needs to be done. The Issachar Initiative desires to be that group, a catalyst to the church with a servant spirit, identifying people groups without workers, languages without scripture, villages without a church, and helping to bring them the light of truth. In the coming decade, it is essential for the global church to focus on the places and people to whom we have not gone. All followers of Christ, regardless of where they live, should ask themselves daily, who hasn't heard? Where do they live? How can I help? May we, in this generation, use our influence, our expertise, and our resources to extend the church to where the church is not, at least not yet. DNA Global Network is honored to be a partner with the Issachar Initiative, and we're seeking to push the edges of the final frontiers of missions, of taking that gospel light of Jesus' story 
to the rest of the world. There was a well-known mission leader in 1974, actually uh, an electrical engineer who decided to uh, get involved personally in missions, Ralph Winter in uh, California. In about 1974, Ralph got together with some researchers and they decided to try to number the number of people groups, ethno-linguistic people groups. They have their own culture, they have their own language, and try to figure out how many of those there were in the world. The reason is because in the Bible, when Jesus says, go into all the world and uh, take the gospel to every nation, literally that word in your Bibles is the word ethne, panta ta ethne, go unto every ethnicity, every kind of people. I don't know how you feel about that, but I just love the fact that in the Bible, Jesus could have chosen to use a different word. He could have chosen to use the word basileon, which was about kingdoms and political countries. But I love the fact that Jesus didn't do that. Jesus completely bypassed all the politicians and went right for the people. Isn't that wonderful about our Lord Jesus? And uh, the story is quite an amazing story that uh, we're going to be looking at even this morning as we talk a little bit more about the unknown and the unnamed uh, peoples of the world, because you see, God is the kind of God who loves to tell a story using people who are sort of anonymous. Just like the Christmas story really began with a young man in Nazareth who was a carpenter, an unknown man by the name of Joseph, until God chose to put his hand on his fiancée, Mary, also an unknown. The world would not know of the names of Joseph and Mary today except for one thing. God chose to use them, and it only took once. Isn't that remarkable? God can choose to use anybody, and it only takes him one time to choose to use you in a way that makes a tremendous difference for all the world. Well, this morning, I want us to uh, take a look at a place in the Bible which talks about unnamed and unknown peoples. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn with me to Acts chapter 11. And there in Acts chapter 11, if you have one of the guest Bibles that are provided for us in the back, you might want to turn to the second half and turn to page 101. And there in page 101, we'll look together. In Acts chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 19 in just a moment. And before we do that, I think one of the things that I want to share with you is that the God of Bethlehem is still springing surprises on the world. The God of Bethlehem still loves to use unnamed and unknown people. Perhaps you are unaware, and so it's partly my responsibility to share this with you today as I'm here, that God is doing some amazing things in the world of missions as I speak to you, things that I would never have imagined in all my years of travels. I've not been everywhere, but I've been to about 90 countries of the world, and I've seen God do amazing things. I've seen him transform cultures. I've seen God change people from being cannibals to being peace-loving, kind, and reaching out to their fellow tribes that they formerly were killing and even eating and make such tremendous transformation. It's just, it's amazing. Who would have guessed that Brazil, where when I was growing up as a child, my parents would present these, these uh, close family friends that we prayed for many nights of the week in our family devotions, prayed for missionaries in Brazil. But who would have guessed that today, the population of Brazil is somewhere around 40% evangelical. And Brazil today is the fastest-growing, mission-sending country in the Western Hemisphere. And everywhere I go around planet Earth, I meet Brazilian missionaries in Africa and Asia and Europe and and everywhere. Who would have guessed that three of the fastest-growing missionary-sending nations on Earth are found in Africa? Who knew? Democratic Republic of Congo, they tell us, will likely be the third largest missionary sending force on planet Earth by the year 2050. Who knew? God knew. 
And that nation, they're sending men and women, mostly men, walking two by two, becoming missionaries who are walking missionaries, walking across Africa to tell people the story of Jesus. And many of them are going out, never expecting to come home until Jesus returns. Not only that, but Nigeria, just last summer, summer before last, spent a number of days as a national church, the Evangelical Churches of West Africa, spent about 30 days of fasting and prayer as a national church seeking the face of God, and they decided together that God wanted them to send 10,000 Nigerian missionaries all across North Africa. Now, isn't it remarkable that in North Africa today, from Morocco all the way over to Cairo, Egypt, they're sort of looking out for American missionaries, and some of them are being deported and, and having to leave the country, and their visas are being pulled, but no one's looking for Nigerians. Isn't that wonderful? God is always giving us gifts to unwrap as surprises of his mighty sovereign hand. And who could have guessed that in the last 10 years or so, God has sent out over 1,200 Ethiopian missionaries. And they're going two by two into Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq, and proclaiming the fact that there is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and his name is Jesus. And they're doing remarkable things in that name. I find it phenomenal and motivational that God loves to use nobodies because that gives me hope. Does that give you hope? You see, if God can use nobodies, God can use anybody. In fact, God can use me. God can use you. You don't have to be a Nobel Prize winner for God to use you. In fact, he would probably prefer to use someone whose name is not so well known. I think of a close mission leader friend who told me a remarkable story not long ago about a particular mission initiative that is going on in Southeast Asia. Over the last several years, they had a little program called the Pony Express, and They were sending students in their summer break and their Christmas break. They were allowing a student to go one time, only once, because they would apply for a visa just as a student. They would walk across the border into this closed country, not allowing missionaries, and they would take these little packets. They would wrap them in bright orange plastic wrap sealed so that it was waterproof, and they would leave these little packets of, of maybe a New Testament or a gospel explanation of how you could find eternal life, how you could have peace with God, and they would put this in the language of that Southeast Asian country, and they would pray as students. They might just have a few of them in a backpack, usually even one or two, and then they would leave them on a bus or in a park bench or at a counter in a store, sort of by accident. They would just sort of leave it there, and they would go back across the border walking, and uh, for years this went on. And only in the last few months have they been able to have a missionary who's studied the language and finally able to get a visa to go in and and start looking for a place to maybe start a church somewhere. And he decided to, uh, he just prayed and found a little bed and breakfast kind of place way back up in the interior along the road. And he just really seemed to like the guy who was the innkeeper there. And so he tried to practice his early language. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm here as a visitor. It's my first time to your country. And, and uh, I came here to, to talk to people about God. And this innkeeper said to him, you know God? Oh, yes, he said. I came to, to share about him. He said, please, he said, then, uh, then stay for our gathering tonight. You have a gathering? What, what's that about? Oh, he said, come. Wait until we close and the lights are out, and then you come in the back door and sit quietly in the corner. And During that uh, gathering time, the lights stayed out. It was very dark, but he noticed a lot of dark forms would come in one at a time over a period of about 45 minutes to an hour. It finally filled up, and, and very quietly he could hear people sort of talking back and forth, and maybe he thought it sounded a little bit like chanting or maybe, maybe even praying, And then uh, everything got quiet and one person was uh, quoting or reading or sounded like they were maybe reciting poetry or something and and then talked for quite a while and then they kind of did some more of the group like 
speaking, praying, chanting, something like that. And then one by one, they filed out. And the next morning, the innkeeper said, how did you like our gathering? He said, I, I liked it, but I wondered what, what it was. What is it? Oh, he said, that's, that's the people of our village who came to know God. Really, he said, how did they come to know God? He said, we don't know, but God visited us. He left us a little orange package. And I'm the one who found it, and I buried it in my garden in a clay pot to protect it, and I went out at midnight in the shed, and I lit a candle. I began to read this, and I just couldn't get enough, and I read, and I read all night, and I was drawn to this story, this amazing story of someone named Jesus, and I kept reading, and and soon I came to realize that I was a person who had sinned, and I needed to confess my sin and receive Jesus, and so I did that, and that's when all the trouble started. What kind of trouble? He said, well, he said, you see, my wife noticed. She said, there's something different about you. What is it? Well, he said, I, if you promise not to tell, he said, I'll take you out with me and we have to go out at midnight and we have to go in the tool shed and we dig this thing up and we, I'll let my wife read. And, and he said, she was the same. She just couldn't get enough and she began to read. And then soon she prayed and she asked Jesus to, to save her and make her different. And, and then it really got bad because he said, my wife cannot keep a secret. And she told our neighbors. And, and before long, this thing began to spread. And, and now we have all these people coming every few nights to our, our place here. And we just don't know what else to do. We're just here because we want to, we quote, each of us has learned chapters and we quote chapters. And we talk to Jesus together and we try to learn how, and if you've come from God, you can help us. You, this would be great. And this missionary was so stunned. And he said, do you know of any more places like this? And he said, oh, yeah. He says, we've heard there's hundreds of them all through the hills, all around us. Dear friend, isn't God amazing? You see, God loves to use nobodies. He, uses, he loves to use unnamed and unknown people. And I want to take you here with me to this passage of Scripture found in, in Acts chapter 11. Look with me in verse 19. I just want to read a few verses here with you. The Bible says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, in Acts eleven nineteen, those who were scattered traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith." And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, isn't it remarkable that here in this passage of Scripture, this is the place where those of us who follow Jesus were first called by his name, the name Christ. And what's interesting to me about this particular emergence of, of the name by which we are called today, that name was not chosen by those who followed Jesus. It was not chosen by those who were believers in Jesus. It wasn't like they had a, a creative group that kind of got together and said, what's a really cool name we could call ourselves? You know, what, it would go good with our logo. <laughs> there, was, there was no marketing plan. There was nothing like that. This name was chosen by the people in the city of Antioch, a, a city which is today under siege in the country of Syria. And we've been praying for people in Syria. There's, there's thousands of people who have died there over the last few months, and there are refugees, and, and it's, it's not far from one of the oldest continuously occupied cities on planet Earth called Aleppo. And so as we think about what was taking place there in that place in Antioch, it's just remarkable that it's there that it was the non-believers, 
the non-believers who decided to call these people Christy people, Christy ones. And that sort of worked its way out in the name Christians, Christians. And over time, that's where the name for those of us who have come to the place in life where we've chosen to say, you know what, I've chosen, this is the way. I'm going to walk this way. I'm going to follow Jesus. I want him to be the one who really is my path in life. And so that's where the name truly originated. Now, as we think a little bit about what's going on in our world today, I thought maybe I might share with you, I picked up this article just this past summer, July, August, in Frontiers Magazine. There was a wonderful article there by Mike Breen called An Obituary for the American Church. And in that article, Mike wrote this, if the enemy gets his way, the American church could be taken out by three things, a culture of celebrity, a culture of consumerism, and a culture of competition. Wow. You mean to tell me, Mike, that there's something that might not be all that healthy about like the church in America? Yeah, he says. And when he talks about a culture of celebrity, he's talking about the fact that oftentimes even in the church, we have fallen prey to this common social disease that we are sort of seeking for fame. And the idea of celebrity seems to be woven into the American culture and values. And and yet there seems to be, what we often forget in this whole thing is, is there's a huge difference between being famous and being significant. Do you find that to be true? And so the question that it begs for us is, whose fame do I seek? This is why God loves to use unknown and unnamed people. Aren't you glad God does not limit himself to celebrities? In fact, the very fact that God chooses to use you and chooses to use me or to use any unnamed person means that we have now been touched with the hand of God and we've been given significance. We have a life that will count forever. It's it's amazing. Culture of celebrity. And then followed quickly by a culture of consumerism. I can't tell you how many church leaders that I talk to as I cross the United States and Canada and even other places in the world where it seems that the church has sort of fallen into a kind of a view of, well, we've got to provide the menu of things that keeps people happy. Because when you go to the mall, you want to go to the store that has the stuff you want. And so the church is sort of a place to give me what I want. Really? Is that your picture of God? He's some kind of cosmic Santa Claus? And his job is to make everybody happy and give everybody fun stuff? Well, that's not really the picture that the Bible draws us about God. In fact, the truth is the Bible teaches us that every time someone who was a human being like us came into contact with a, with a person from the other world, a person from what the Bible calls heaven, every single time a human being met with an angelic being or the divine presence, they fell on their faces and trembled and thought they were going to die. Because that's the the power and the glory and the amazing presence of those who come from the very presence of God. Somehow, we tend to lose that sense of awe. Since we talk about ball games and ball players as awesome, it's sometimes hard for us to regard God is the only awesome one. And so in our culture of consumerism, we we tend to sort of look for a God who will serve us because, of course, the customer is king, right? The question in this sense is, what does God deserve? I had a Chinese brother ask me recently, he said, you know, Michael, I wonder, you know, I I come back uh, here from China and I see commercials and and this was a few weeks ago before the election. He said, I see all these election things going on and in the news, it doesn't matter like which party, this party or that party. They're all saying the same thing. Like America deserves better than this. America deserves better. 
And he says, from the perspective of a Chinese person, why does America think they deserve better? Isn't that an interesting question? And maybe we should be asking the question, what does God deserve? Because the Bible teaches us that from the very beginning that God deserves the very best. And if you were going to give an offering to God from your fruits, you would go and select the very finest quality fruits. If you were going to select a lamb, you would take the very best lamb with no sickness, no blemish, nothing. It had to be a perfect offering because God deserves the very best. And then the third point Mike makes is that in our church in America today, we tend to have a culture of competition. And he writes, pursuing our self-ambition In some ways, we are actually competing both in actuality or simply in our minds against people who are on our own team or against others who are actually partners in the gospel. And if these three cultures, the celebrity, the consumerism, and the competition are not dealt with, the American church will soon become a hollow shell that is spiritually listless. Wow. I call that a punch in the gut or a kick in the pants, and sometimes we need that just to sort of stop and think about where we are. And I would ask the question about the competition, when might losing be better than winning? It's not a typically American idea, is it? Well, as we think about moving along, I want us to to consider from this very passage of Scripture in the book of Acts, chapter 11, a couple, three points. The first is the power of anonymity versus celebrity. I want you to look at these nameless people and how God used them to really launch not just the first church really that got going outside of, of Jewish culture and outside of Jerusalem, but God actually used this church in Antioch to launch the missions movement that has now touched our world. And by the way, I know that when you saw a lot of those numbers in that early video, it's kind of stunning to see that there's these 3,000 people groups. But could I just let you know where we are there? In 1974, when Ralph Winter named those ethnicity groups around the world, they came up with a number that was somewhere between 12 and 15,000. Between 1974 and the year 2000, mission agencies and missionaries and church groups had focused on trying to not just go to countries, but to go to people groups, specific language culture groups, uh, which in the missions world, we call them people groups. By the year 2000, when the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association gathered in a great meeting in Amsterdam, Holland, they gathered 10,000 evangelists from every country of the world that, in which the gospel had come, and they gathered those 10,000 together, and they challenged them with the fact that from that point in 1974 to the year 2000, there remained some 6,000 people groups. From 2000 till 2012, in the last 12 years, 3,000 of those people groups have been Uh, reached with the gospel, reached in the following way in which at least 2% of their population has now claimed to have faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? And then from there, God is launching mission movements from everywhere to everywhere. And we want to push forward to that last 3,000 group of, of peoples around the world who have yet to hear the gospel as our videos showed so clearly. Now, I want you to see that God loves to use, as I just described to you earlier, that God is sending missionaries from South America and from Africa and from Southeast Asia. India now has over 50,000 of its own cross-cultural missionaries. And the Philippines and other nations are sending in a remarkable way. So I want us to see now exactly kind of how this thing works, that the power of anonymity sort of trumps the power of celebrity. Notice the scripture says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. You see, what's really remarkable here is that this whole thing was really not so planned out. It wasn't so much of a grand strategy or some charismatic leader. It was simply those basic, committed, obedient disciples to Jesus who no one knew who decided, we got to do this. Jesus commanded us. Just this time last year, I was returning from Iran 
I made a trip there to sort of check out what God was doing in the nation of Iran. In, in case you haven't checked this out or read this, if you, if you check into some of the amazing resources available today, such as Operation World, Operation World says that now the fastest growing community of believers on planet Earth by percentage is found in the nation of Iran. Does that surprise you? Surprise. And there I discovered that in Iran, the two places where Christianity is growing the fastest are the two holy cities in Iran of Qum and Mashhad. No foreigners are allowed in Mashhad. No foreigners are allowed in Qum. That's where they have these special Islamic seminaries. And there are signs. I saw them. There are signs with skull and crossbones on the road. If any foreigner steps into any of those holy cities, the penalty is death. You are not allowed to go there. It's a holy city. So isn't it interesting that in those two holy cities, Christianity seems to be growing faster right now than any other place in Iran. Don't you find that remarkable that God put it behind a fence where no mission agency or organization could ever claim credit? (laughs) And I had an Iranian man come up to me in the marketplace and walk along beside me and kind of kept his eyes peeled like this and spoke to me very quickly as I walked through a very crowded marketplace. And he said to me, you're from America, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. Well, he said, I understand in America that when young people rebel, they take drugs and, and they go off into alcoholism and they get involved in all kinds of terrible sexual things. And I said, well, I'm afraid that that's true. He said, do you know what young people do in Iran when they rebel? I said, maybe the same thing. Oh, no, he said, in Iran, when our young people rebel, they become followers of Jesus. And he quickly turned and disappeared in the marketplace. I said, where did this guy come from? I want his name. <laughs> But that's, of course, precisely the point. God wants us to know that he works through unknown and unnamed people. And God is working today in places in the world that you and I would never dream. Because he is a God who loves to work through the power of anonymity. And he uses these here in Acts chapter 11 as those who were scattered, these people were running for their lives. It was, they were being scattered because of persecution that arose. Now, let's just do a quick little lesson here in this particular word. When you hear the word scattered, and when you understand that they're running for their lives from the police and like Saul and others who were trying to bind people and take them to jail, what do you think when you hear the word scattered? Do you think organization or chaos? Which one? Chaos. Okay, now I want to do a little paradigm shift with you. I want you to see the meaning of the word scattered. Are you ready? I can teach you this in any language on planet Earth. I can do this and people anywhere understand immediately what this word means. Here's the meaning of the word scattered found in this verse. Are you ready? You got to watch. This is the meaning of the word scattered. Here you go. What am I doing? Sowing, spreading seed, right? Spreading seed. That's the word. That's the word the Holy Spirit used in Acts chapter 11 to talk about the people who were being scattered. They're being diasporized. They're being sown. Now, let me ask you, when you hear that word now, do you think chaos or order? Order. Suddenly, our world turns upside down and we realize that what we thought was chaos is no longer chaos at all. You just have to move a few thousand feet above to see that there is indeed order and there's pattern and God is at work in a remarkable, remarkable way. Now, not only do we see that God's using these these unknown and unnamed people But I want you to know that God actually is using, in a very positive way, the motivating, powerful force of suffering and persecution. I find that uh, the church in the Western world today is sometimes real worried about persecution, and we pray a lot for those who are in the part of the world where persecution of Christianity exists. I don't know if you've thought about it lately, but it may not be long before In the Western world, we also could be experiencing some level of pressure 
or persecution because of our belief in Jesus Christ. Could I just suggest to you that persecution has never yet killed the church? In fact, persecution is not the biggest threat to the church today. The biggest threat to the church today is a diluted gospel that does not embrace suffering. I wonder, is your faith big enough? Is your faith worthy enough that you'd be willing to suffer and die for it? I was traveling on the east coast of India near Madras, and I met a wonderful servant of God by the name of Mano Daniel, and Mano has a ministry that came down from his father, an engineer, and his father decided to develop a track distributing ministry, and he asked each of these little workers to pray that God would give them like 60 cents a week, and they, they pray by faith that God will provide this in rubles, and, and they, they get the money, and uh, they, they buy their own tracks. And so it's a self-sustaining ministry by faith. And uh, Mono told me, he said, we now have 25,000 track distributors. And last year, these track distributors distributed over 40 million pieces of tracks to other people in India. 40 million. He said, I want you to meet some of them. I call them my leadership in obscurity. Don't you love that name? I love that name. I'll never forget this one little guy, this little scrawny guy who came up front. And I was, and Mano said, would you just, just go with me? And, and they'll be gathering in tents around the place and just get up and preach the word of God and teach them about the Bible and help them to understand how to give the gospel out to their friends and neighbors and people on their streets. Most of these people, he said, can't read or write. I said, but Mano, how do they give out tracts? He goes, they come to the meetings and they learn the stories orally. And they go and they will give a tract to someone and tell them the story and the person who can read the track doesn't even realize that they can't read. And he said, we need your help. We need to partner with you to help train our people because some of them are being beaten. And this one little guy came up and he had terrible scars on his face. And I said, Mano, what happened? Who is this guy? And he said, this guy went into a Hindu village before the tsunami and he proclaimed Jesus there. And the Hindu priest came and led a mob of people and they stoned him and they trampled him and left him for dead. Does that sound like anything you've ever read before in the Bible? And he said, this guy, when your organization sent to us humanitarian relief after the tsunami, and my workers came and they lined up for blocks to be in line to get boxes of relief goods to take to the villages, this guy was first in line. And he said some of his scars and stitch marks were still there, from his beating and being trampled. And he took his first box to the village that trampled him. And he went to the mayor's house and knocked on the door of the mayor's house. And when the mayor came to the door, his house had been destroyed and torn apart, but he you know, came to the front and there was this, this evangelist and he knelt down with this box and he began to weep and he said, you see, I told you, we meant you no harm. I bring you this for your family in the name of Jesus. Oh, do you understand the power of suffering and persecution? You see, that Hindu priest had said, over my dead body will any Christian ever come into this village again. He was never seen again after the tsunami. Today, in the middle of that village, stands a community center where people are being trained for work and there also is meeting in that center a gathering of new believers who are being led by that evangelist with scars on his face. And when I went there to dedicate that meeting, as we sat on the platform and the mayor came and the city council came, I saw the guy standing behind the mayor and I said to Mano, I said, Mano, what's this guy doing with the mayor? And he goes, the mayor has now made him on the city council. <laughs> He's now gone from the lowest to the most respected man in the city because God has used him as an unknown guy to reach out to amazingly. It's the power of anonymity. I love this story by David Barrett. David Barrett is probably one of the best known researchers in missions in our world today. He's studied literally thousands of people groups and, and you could speak to David for hours about the things he knows about what's going on. And he was asked to speak to a very wealthy group of American donors to be giving donations to missions. And they asked him, they said, Mr. Barrett, 
what is the most effective means of evangelism in our world today? And without hesitating, David Barrett replied, martyrdom. Martyrdom is the most effective means of evangelism. Things got really quiet. And then somebody raised a hand and said, Dr. Barrett, what is the second most effective means of evangelism? You see, these nameless scattered people were much like refugees on the run. They had no security. They had no stability. But they were on fire. And they were willing to put it all on the line for Jesus because they knew that he was really the only hope And the early church movement, as you see there by Michael Green, was not really initiated by master plans or charismatic leaders or fantastic strategies, but by these nameless, fearless, committed disciples. Don't you love God and the way he does things? Dear friends, all it takes is not necessarily, he doesn't want you to have the big name. What God wants to do is he wants you and me to sort of recede into the darkness so that one name that is above every name can shine for all of eternity. It's the name Jesus. That's the name that we want people to remember. Well, what were some of the characteristics of these nameless people? Well, first of all, I want to just say to you, they were fearless. They, they really had no reputation to, re- to protect except the name of Jesus. They wanted to protect Jesus' reputation. So what about you and what about me? What causes us to hold back from talking to people about Jesus? Isn't it sometimes that we're a little concerned about our own reputation? Yeah. Kind of a problem, isn't it? But you see, God promises to use those who are nameless if they're fearless. Not only were they fearless, but... They were multi-ethnic and they were a breakthrough people. And I love this because as a boy, I grew up in another country. I grew up in the nation of Jamaica. And so I love being a part of a multi-ethnic community and, and just watching God touch a lot of people from a lot of different ethnic backgrounds. I think the, the perfect example of a church would be just a church brimming with people with many different ethnicities. To me, that's like a little piece of heaven. I love that. And I love the fact that in this story, these, these Jewish and Greek people ended up going up to Antioch. And in fact, we don't really get how, how difficult this was, but the old historian Josephus wrote that if a Jew was to see a Greek woman who was pregnant suddenly begin labor in the street, if he touched her or tried to give her any help at all, He would never be allowed in the synagogue again. He would be treated as permanently unclean, lifelong, because he had touched a Gentile woman in labor. Isn't that tragic? I mean, that's how full of hypocrisy religion got, even in Jesus' day. And I love the fact that God didn't choose the Jewish guys from Jerusalem to do this. He let the guys from Cyprus and Cyrene do it. They came over from Cyprus and Cyrene and sort of came in from the side, and they sort of didn't know any better. I mean, they just said, well, these people need to know about Jesus too. We're going to tell them. And so they told them. And and the Bible says there that those Greek people were just ready to hear the gospel. And I find that in the kingdom of God, timing is everything. And so the Bible says here that when they gave the message, they preached the Lord Jesus. It says the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Wow. Wow. Something they didn't expect because they sort of broke a rule. They were breakthrough people and they broke through a barrier. It was a cultural barrier and a racial barrier and an ethnic barrier. And they they didn't like know they weren't supposed to do that. Their society said no. Their culture said you can't do that. But they didn't worry about that. They followed Jesus. And I want you to know that if you're going to be a fully obedient follower of Jesus, you and I, we're going to have to be breakthrough people. We're going to have to break some social rules once in a while. We're going to have to make sure we tell people, even if it maybe feels a little uncomfortable, even if it maybe feels like we're not sort of keeping all the rules. And then they demonstrate the lordship of Jesus. If you kind of go through these verses and count, you know, the word Lord Jesus several times here in verse 20 and They spoke, they preached the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number turned to the Lord. 
In verse 23, he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. And a great many people, verse 24, were added to the Lord. These people were full of the lordship of Jesus. They knew who was in charge. And they demonstrated the lordship of Jesus. They followed him first, and then everybody else came second. Back a number of years ago in China, there was something called the Boxer Rebellion. And from 1949 to 51, there were over 6,400 missionaries expelled from China. People thought this was the end. They thought, wow, this missions is dead in China. What's going to happen to the church? Some people wrung their hands. Now we know what's happened. Today, the church in China is well over 100 million people and growing rapidly. And here's one of the reasons. During the Boxer Rebellion, thousands of Christians died. There was one particular mission there called China Inland Mission that was launched by Hudson Taylor. China Inland Mission lost 58 adults and 22 children, most of whom were beheaded publicly. Quite a gruesome scene. Afterward, when the government finally restored order and got the rebellion put down and put everybody in prison that did that, they requested that the various mission agencies give them a list of all the things that had been destroyed, the buildings, the lives, the lost, and the government said, we will pay some kind of payment of reparation to you. And at that time, the head of China Inland Mission, who was DE host, he responded by letter saying, we, China Inland Mission, will not accept any compensation for the lives or buildings lost. We accept all the losses in the name of Jesus. And we extend our forgiveness to the people of China in the name of Jesus. So on October the 11th, 1901, the governor of the Shanxi province issued a proclamation that was to be displayed in every public school and every public office in that province of China. This is incredible. This is what the governor said. The mission, which is called China Inland Mission, in rebuilding churches with its own funds, aims to do so to fulfill the command of Jesus, the Savior of the world, so that all men should love their neighbors as themselves. Jesus, in his instruction, inculcates forgiveness, and all desire for revenge is discouraged. These missionaries are able to carry out these principles to the full. Therefore, I urge that all of you lay people, scholars, army, and fathers, exhort your sons and younger brothers to bear in mind the example of these missionaries who are able to forbear and forgive as they teach, according to Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? Dear friends, I want to say to you, when we are simply radical followers of Jesus Christ, the world around us, government included, cannot understand, and it is stunning. The message of those of us who follow Jesus is so incredible. Well, the power of their faith is amazing here. It's, it's the power of faith of these unnamed and unknown people. And yes, eventually Barnabas kind of got sent there. But Barnabas wasn't one of the big league boys. He wasn't one of the 12. He was just kind of a sideline guy at that point. Not a lot of people knew who he was. And they came and, and, and asked him to come. And he looked around and he saw some opportunity here. He saw some young men and women who needed to be mentored. And he went and got somebody who was a young Christian himself. He got a young guy named Saul from Tarsus and brought him down. And it says they taught the church. And it was out of their teaching and out of that church that God decided, here, I'm going to explode a missions movement that will change the world. Dear friends, I want you to know that this morning as we meet here, the God of Bethlehem is not finished transforming the world. He's not finished using unnamed and unknown people to do surprise things in our world. This word came to me through our network just a few weeks ago. There was a little gathering of people on the border of Afghanistan. Just, this just happened weeks ago. As they were meeting to pray, a little evangelical church, they began to talk together, and they realized that some of them were having the same dreams. Now, this is not unusual in the Muslim world today for people to have dreams, to point them to go find a Bible or find a believer. But this was a little strange because this was not... Muslims at this point, this was a, a gathering of people like you and me who were, were followers of Jesus, and 
And some who were seeking to find out the truth, and they were meeting there, and many of these people were having the same dream, and the dream was that they should get as many Bibles in Farsi, the Iranian language, as possible, and put them on a truck and drive them to the border. So in the middle of the night, the, the men of the church got the, this old truck together, and they piled it up with boxes of Farsi Bibles, and they started driving toward the border. And about a couple of miles from the edge of the border, the truck broke down. And they really got shaken because they said, well, we don't know what's going to happen. What they didn't realize is that on the other side of the border, another village had been having dreams. These people were not believers. These people were Muslims. And they had, in their dreams, they saw someone and they heard a voice that said, go and get this holy book. There's a holy book that will come to you. It'll be at the border. And so there they are in the truck, huddled down in the middle of the night, about 3 o'clock in the morning, these Iranian believers, just weeks ago. And the driver of the truck was pretty scared. He kept thinking, you know, they're gonna, the border guards are going to see that we have a truck here. They're going to come. They're going to arrest us. Whatever's going to happen, we don't know. But so in the middle of the night, they were trying to get some sleep in the back of the truck and in the cab, and bang, 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 bang. Somebody starts beating on the side of the, the cab, and they, they kind of rolled a window down and said, you know, who are you? And they said, do you have the books? They said, do we have what books? And they said, we're from Iran. We're from the other side of the border. And we came to get the holy books. Do you have the holy books for us? Who are you? Why do you ask? They said, we have about 20 men here with backpacks. We're ready to carry the books across the border through a mountain pass. So they got, opened the back of the truck and they started loading all the backpacks. And they gave all these guys the books and they, they disappeared into the night. No one knows their names. No mission agency did this. No organization with a denominational logo did this. This was nothing less than the hand of God who chooses to use unnamed. And unknown people like Joseph and Mary and Musafa and others, perhaps your name is on his list. Dear friend, our world is without hope this morning. But the hope is found in Jesus who chooses to use people just like you and just like me. And perhaps today he would choose to use you. If you would be fearless and committed and bold and be willing to say, you know, Jesus, I'll tell you what, I'm going to lay down my worries about my reputation and I'm just going to sort of think about your reputation this morning and I want to share the hope of the world with somebody who's never heard it before. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time today. Help us to realize that you are the most incredible God and that only through sharing the gospel light of Jesus is our world going to have the hope that's the only hope that can save a man or a woman for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.